Hey everybody and welcome to Views on View. Today in our panel we have Ben Hong, developer at GitLab and also on the core team of Viewpress. Hello. And Ari Clark, who's a developer at Liquid. Hello. This episode is sponsored by Tidelift, the enterprise-ready open source software managed for you solution. Tidelift provides commercial support and maintenance for the open source dependencies you use to build your applications, backed by the project maintainers. Save time, reduce risk, and improve code health. The Tidelift subscription is managed open source for application development teams. It covers millions of open source projects across JavaScript, Python, Java, PHP, Ruby, .NET, and more. Your subscription includes security updates from Tidelift security response team that coordinates patches for new breaking security vulnerabilities and alerts immediately through a private channel so your software supply chain is always secure. Tidelift also verifies license information to enable easy policy enforcement and adds intellectual property indemnification to cover creators and users in case something goes wrong. You always have a 100% up-to-date bill of materials for your dependencies to share with your legal team, customers, and partners. Tidelift ensures the software you rely on keeps working as long as you need it to work. Your managed dependencies are actively maintained and we recruit additional maintainers when required. Tidelift helps you choose the best open source packages from the start and then guides you through the updates to stay on the best releases as new issues arise. Take a seat at the table with the creators behind the software you use. Tidelift's participating maintainers earn more income as their software is used by more subscribers, so they're interested in knowing what you need. Tidelift supports GitHub, GitLab, Bitbucket, and more. They support every cloud platform and other development targets too. The bottom line is you get all the capabilities you expect and require from commercial software, but now from the key open source software you depend on. Check them out at devchat.tv slash Tidelift. Today we have something a, a little bit different. We usually have a guest today. We're actually just discussing a topic, and that topic is developer tooling and our, our dev setup for working with Vue. And while this isn't Vue specific, we figured the first thing we might talk about, because it's the first thing that like everybody wants to talk about whenever you post like a code example, even though the code example has nothing to do with this. Yo, what font are you using? <laughs> <laughs> that font is dank. <laughs> Literally. Sometimes literally. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go around. And how about Ben? Do you want to start us off with what font and theme do you use? Yes. Actually, uh, let me start with editor too. Editor, yes. So I'm on VS Code. I uh, used to be a Sublime diehard fan. Yes, I paid for my license. So I went kicking and screaming to VS Code. But my theme is Night Owl by Sarah Drasner. And my font I use is Operator Mono. Yeah, oh, go yeah. ahead. Also VS Code, I also didn't want to go to VS Code. I was previously uh, Adam all the way, but then I started writing Vue and sports just better in Vue. I have to say, I have no regrets, <laughs> but it's neither here nor there. I use Dank Mono as my font. And as uh, a former Adam user, my theme is One Dark Pro because syntax highlighting, I just... My mind is so used to seeing functions and whatnot in certain colors that I, I've tried switching to more exciting themes and I, I can't. <laughs> it's just cognitive dissonance. Hey, it makes sense. We have enough like things that change that are beyond our control that we have to deal with as developers. Yeah, unfortunately, when I was using Atom, I was actually using a slightly modified version of One Dark that the colors were a little less saturated. And I haven't been able to find an equivalent for VS Code. So if anybody knows of one, let me know on Twitter, because I will love you forever. 
because I don't want to have to do it myself. <laughs> and what about you, Chris? Uh, let's see. Honestly, I, I use Monaco most of the time. Sometimes I switch it up, but I show a lot of code to people, you know, demo a lot of code when I'm, when I'm working with people, when I'm pairing and things like that. And Monaco is like a free font that everybody has access to that just looks good. It's not fancy or anything like that. It just looks good. And it, no one asks usually like, oh, what font is that? Because they've seen it a bunch of times. And so it's not distracting. You know, it's, it's not distracting in how good it looks or how cool it looks. And there are no like fancy ligatures that you have to uh, interpret or anything like that. But that's half the fun. <laughs> I, mean, I, I do appreciate that it is kind of fun to like have a setup that only you can use. <laughs> like the, the keyboard I use is Colomac. So anyone who tries to <laughs> type anything on my machine will just feel confused and, and even stupid. I have personal anecdotes of trying to type on Chris's machine. And yes, I felt quite stupid. <laughs> S- security through uh, obscurity? Is that what it's, is that what it's called? <laughs> I like exactly it. right here, yeah. And the theme that I use is, is actually, even though I, I don't have operator mono, I was, um, I was given operator mono as a, as a gift from someone. I did not pay for it. I don't think that would be worth it for me personally. <laughs> but uh, I use tomorrow night operator mono. Oh, nice. And even when I'm not using operator mono, I still really like it. It looks good to me. Yeah, I like the tomorrow I've used that for a long time. I don't change my theme up that often. You know, what's interesting is my terminal theme is actually tomorrow night 80s, but I can't, it doesn't work for me in my editor, which I'm weird apparently. Because you'd think mm. that like I'd want like parody there, but no. We should go on to the, the, the terminal. <laughs> this is actually a good segue. So do you yeah. use the same font in your terminal? I just yesterday actually switched it to the same font. Previously, I think I was using Menlo in the terminal. Because yeah, again, it's another just sort of standard clean font. Yeah, I use I use Monaco. Yep, still use Operator Mono. Got to get my money's worth because I'm a sucker <laughs> who spent money. <laughs> I wouldn't say a sucker. I could, it sounds like it is worth it to you. So now what, what terminal do you use? Yeah, do you right. like that? That's the question. Are, and did, oh, yeah. I also use VS Code. Did you, all right, did, you talked about using VS Code too. So yeah. do we use the integrated terminal in VS Code? I use the integrated terminal, but separately, I, I also still use uh, the native Mac terminal. Mm. I'm not one of those cool kids. It's like, I turned three or whatever. <laughs> Wait, it is. it's a three? I don't even know. I didn't even know there was a three. Wait, were cool? iTerm kids are cool kids? I didn't know I was belonging to that club. <laughs> but all the cool kids are using integrated terminal or hyper. Hyper was the new, the new shindig. Well, for me, like I use the integrated terminal for things directly related to whatever project I'm working on. Mm. But like uh, for things like SSHing into my dev stack, I will use the standalone terminal because... I only want to keep track of one tab along with my code. So other tabs go outside. <laughs> yeah, I also am usually using the integrated terminal nowadays, although I, I sometimes use iTerm2 as well. And I, I used to use iTerm2 exclusively, and I, I used to keep it like side by side with, yeah. with my editor. But since I can do that essentially with the integrated terminal, I, I just do that instead. Yeah, I have to say that was uh, that was one of the reasons why I didn't totally hate life switching to VS Code. 
Because I, I actually, there were some extensions for Atom that allowed you to integrate a terminal, but they were very unstable. So wasn't the greatest user experience. I split my terminal up into like multiple panes. So that's why the integrated usually limits me a bit. Because while you can split horizontally, I don't think you can really split vertically or maybe I just don't know the keyboard shortcut to it, but I'm so used to it in iTerm that I just still use iTerm primarily. Yeah, that's a great point. That's when I'll find myself usually like opening up iTerm when I just want to set up like a whole monitor. That's just like a bunch of different Mm -hmm. like terminal panes that I want to resize. And yeah. Yeah, no, sometimes like when I'm debugging and I'm like having to look at actual like logs from the underlying system, I need like at least two panes open Mm -hmm. because there's our event log scrolls pretty fast. There's a whole lot going on. I need and see like a huge chunk of it. And then I also need to look at the server messages. So yeah, no, it's like, uh, that's the only time that I look like a hacker from a movie. (laughs) (laughs) There have been rare occasions where I sometimes need like five different like logs just streaming that I can look at. Mm -hmm. And then I feel really cool because I do look like a hacker from a movie. Mm -hmm. There aren't that many occasions. Yeah. Yeah. Or we actually look like that. I know. (laughs) (laughs) And I am almost never typing that furiously. Uh, yeah, I don't think I'm capable. A lot more of thinking than typing. <laughs> Speaking yeah. of terminal, are, do you still use the CLI for Git, or do you all use version control in VS Code? I use the CLI. I just use the CLI too. Yeah. Oh wow. Every once in a while, okay. There's one thing that I will use the version control in VS Code for, and that's undoing a commit because I never bothered to learn. The <laughs> Git I have a macro for that. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly don't do it that often, but every once in a while. I will realize that I didn't actually save the file I just changed. I don't want to do another commit message. I do find that get like the diff in VS Code is really nice because I have it on like a big monitor and it's easy to tell what changed, what was added. I actually am still getting used to the VS Code way of doing it. It has improved since I first started using VS Code, but I think it's one of those things where I was so used to the way that Adam handled it mm. that. Maybe it's just, yeah, my expectations were different. But I will say that the VS Code diff is a little closer to the way it was in Atom now. So Got it. Yeah, I still commit primarily with the CLI, but diffing I use um, on the VS Code just because it's easier to see everything. Text highlighted. Ooh, I have a really good question. Okay, do you guys use Bash in your terminals or are you using some other variant on Bash? DSH or Fish? Z-Shell. I personally use Zish because I'm too lazy to create aliases myself and it comes <laughs> in with a lot of really good ones. <laughs> like, using like Omizish? Yeah. Yeah. So Ben, I, I say ZSH. You say Z-Shell and then Ari, you are pronouncing <laughs> Zish. Yeah. <laughs> this is a perfect example of one of those things that like you just never say out loud. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. So technically... I say Zish because that was what was recommended for use at my boot camp, and that's how they verbally stated it to us. So, honestly, I don't know if I've heard that many people even say it. Right? Yeah. Like so that's a better reason than I have for pronouncing it the way I do. Yeah. No, I had one of those rare occasions where it was spoken to me before I used it, but I feel like that's so rare with things like that. Because usually, like, you're reading some blog article where they're like, hey, I tried this, and it was awesome. And you're like, I don't know how you actually say that. Mm, okay. 
So I use fish. I used DSH. Why fish? Shame. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I used fish because... So one of the ways I try to keep track of like what people are doing and like, you know, what, what I, when I should pay attention to like another tool or something like that is I try to f- do a bunch of searches to see how many people are moving from one tool to another. And I don't think I could find any instances where someone moved from fish to ZSH and hmm. preferred to stay there. But I could find lots and lots of instances where people would, would move to fish from ZSH and prefer to stay there. That doesn't mean they don't exist. That doesn't mean they don't exist, but. So the galvanized onboarding docs, so like our very first day of class, it was, you know, setting up our dev environment. And there was sort of a a fork in the path when it came to the terminal. And we were specifically told that they were moving away from fish and that we should follow the the Zish instructions. So So, that is was done on mass. (laughs) For instructional materials, like I can actually, I, I can see exactly why they would do that because not all bash commands are valid fish commands and oh. vice versa. And so if you want people to like be able to just like log into a server and like know how to write commands and stuff like that, you really do need to teach them, you know, something like bash or CSH. I don't think in boot camps, like I would never recommend teaching fish but when people like already know how to use bash and they want to level up i think fish might be a better option like it's Hmm. it's faster it can do basically all the same things that csh can do are you sure it's faster yeah pretty sure i mean that's what everybody says at least and that's what it feels like to me so i have a friend who actually wrote his own and while he was writing it, he was posting benchmarks on, you know, the various bash flavors. And I want to say that uh, Zish outperformed fish. That would be very surprising to me. But yeah, I, I, everything I've seen has been the opposite. But it could also be that, that my information is out of date. Or I something. also could be totally misremembering it. So there's that. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's quite fast and it has some some nice out-of-the-box features that even Oh My ZSH doesn't have. Like the, the, okay, autocomplete like is, the autocomplete is quite a bit better. Okay. It's definitely worth checking out uh, if, you're, if you're curious and honestly have more free time than you know what to do with. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not, not quite like. there yet. <laughs> yeah, it's like I haven't been making like a lot of changes like this recently. And I think it's just because like, there's just not a lot of free time anymore to to do that kind of stuff or, or free time is 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 more precious like you want to i want to play video I, games I, during my free time yeah <laughs> yeah i want to just not do work do you guys find that you're somewhat set in your ways with your dev environment i mean i will admit i totally am like i'm very resistant to change in my environment <laughs> or do you guys like always try the next greatest tool I might be that person. <laughs> I at least give it a shot I usually. I tried switching to Hyper because it was like getting a lot of press. And it just like, it felt like it was eating up a lot of RAM and performance wise, I didn't feel like it was that great. So, and it was um, buggy, at least when I tried it. Yeah, exactly. Like, and I was just like, like I, I, just, I, I just need it to work. Come on, like all my <laughs> other terminals just work. 
this is an immediate yeah. deal breaker if it doesn't just work. Right. Yeah. So yeah. That's why I moved away from it. Although it has really fun stuff, like when you type, like Nia and Cat can like fly by and little. Oh, okay, yeah. No, I'm totally seeing gifts of people doing crazy things with that. Yeah, that's hyper. It's distracting to me. But... It, it is. It's fun for like the first five seconds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I already have enough issues with distractions and on my computer. <laughs> Speaking of extensions, what are people using in their VS Code? Not much. Oh my God. So I, I feel like the biggest idiot ever because I had heard people talking about, you know, the bracket colorizer. I've been hearing about it for, you know, a long time, but I'm the idiot who didn't listen until very recently. Life-changing, <laughs> absolutely life-changing. So if you're not using that, oh my God, you have to at least try it. What is bracket pair colorizer? Okay. So you know how, uh, let's say you have some nested uh, blocks Maybe, but especially with say when you're writing nested stats, which I know some people are totally against, but I'm sure a lot of you out there have done this. And then maybe you're trying to move around some some of the blocks, and then you kind of start to get lost, and you lost track of the pairs because they're all the same color. They're all you know whatever your standard text color is. But what if each layer of brackets had a unique color? Just imagine that. Imagine how how much easier it will be to visually parse all the things. That is what that does for you. <laughs> I can second that recommendation. Right? <laughs> like, why, why did I do this sooner? Why? <laughs> and to give credit where it's due, I, I think I first heard about that from Sarah Drasner. Probably, yeah. That I think sense. it's part of her View VS Code extension, right? Her extension pack? Yeah, I believe it is. Which is actually what I would recommend. So for Vue stuff, Vue VS Code Extension Pack by Sarah Drasner and Viter by Pine Wu. So I think those if are you're not core. using Viter, you're not living in Vue, okay? <laughs> I don't know how <laughs> you're, I don't know for how you're stuff, I'd say Viter is like the essential yes. it, yeah. extension. Like if you don't have that, honestly, I think it'd be really difficult to write Vue in VS Code without it. I mean, that's the whole reason I switched to VS Code is because there wasn't an equivalent in Atom. And it just makes life so much easier because, you know, if editor isn't yelling at me about things that it shouldn't be yelling at me about. Because <laughs> that annoys the crap out of me. Oh, my God. Yep. I also recommend uh, Vue VS Code Snippets. That's a separate extension, but it comes with, like, basically, like, if you do, like, vBase and you hit tab, it'll automatically, temp- like, templatize out, like, your template, your script, and your style block. It'll have stuff already pre-filled out. If you haven't tried that out, Vue VS Code Snippets. Okay. I have never used like actual snippets. Like I use Edmit, but I feel like that's not the same. So tell me why I would want to use a code snippet snippet extension. Yeah. So okay, so actually Emmet's a great actually that's like the that's like the bare minimum, right? Like you hit right, yeah. you hit tab and it extends out. Think that, but like for your whole single file component. So, you know, every time you're scaffolding a new one, normally you have to like t- do your template and then you have to do your script. And you have to type like export default and then bracket. Or I just piggyback off of Chris's hard work and <laughs> templates. Oh, yeah. You could script it too. For those of us that don't have it scripted, we have macros. Yeah. So that's basically what it helps you do is you just do like your V base and then it scaffolds it out the way you'd always do it. So maybe it always puts the SAS language on your style block and then automatically configure some default things you're used to. 
Like in Sarah's, her base single file component always comes with a div in addition to the template so that you don't accidentally do multiple root nodes. Like you just know like, yeah, that's my root node right there. Like I'll change it if I need to. But so just little things like that, that it does for you, which is pretty nice. Since uh, VS Code has come out with workspace snippets, this is actually something that I preferred to any like uh, snippet packs, like in, in any extensions, uh, I try to turn snippets off so that we can define like all the snippets that we want for a project in the project. Ooh, tell me more about this. I have not yeah. heard about this. So in the .vs code folder, you can create files with a .code hyphen snippets extension. And these are basically global snippets for that project. What? Yeah, so in, in View Enterprise Boilerplate, I have some examples of this, like some, some basic things to get people started, you know, for like single file component blocks and for different components that, that people might want to use, like the base components, you know, that you're globally registering and using all over the place. Just Whoa. out of curiosity, when did you add those? I may need to do some updating of my project. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, that might have been like... October 8th, 2018. Oh, yeah. No, there's a good chance I don't have that. <laughs> I was Almost an early adopter. <laughs> you, you were one of the hip kids? I was. I totally was. Using that since like May 2018. Wow, this is really cool. Well, now I add another thing to my to-do list. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, I feel like I that out of this discussion, there will be so many items on my <laughs> and to try yeah. list. And it makes wow. the snippets really easy to write. Like you don't have to like know how to parse like an abstract syntax tree or anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're just really like writing the code that you wanted to produce with like a little bit of extra syntax on top of that when you want something more complicated. Yeah, to your point, I've actually realized that like sometimes my snippets are fighting each other. Like I'm trying to do a P tag, but it'll auto, it'll pick another snippet. And then I have this random snippet that's expanded. And yeah. I'm like, wait, that's not what I wanted. And this yeah, way you can like, make it specific to like the standards that you've agreed upon in this project and like the, the components that you use in this project. Mm. I feel like that's maybe one of the reasons why I've like shied away from snippets because I think I think at one point I tried them and I found that it was trying to override my, you know, Emmett shortcuts. And that was just getting really frustrating really fast. Because yeah, like certain things I'm just used to doing. Like I type yeah. F and then I type tab and my function is there. I like one letter things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mine does a for loop function. I think that that's one that I had to, Im- I want to say that there was a, an Adam extension for VS code that put that one in there. Oh, interesting. Or I know I had to do something special because yeah, by default, VS code did not support that. And I was so used to that from Adam. That, like, it was really messing me up. Yeah, Chris, I think that's going to be a game changer for me. I'm definitely going to be implementing that across my various projects going forward. Oh, and by the way, in that .vs code folder, you can also set up a settings.json file that has overrides for like personal settings that people might have. Mm. So for example, if people have like personal prettier settings that they, they want to use on you know, just like generic projects that don't already have something installed that are for their personal projects. You can override those to make sure you're using like the the prettier settings that you want to use in this project specifically. And same with like a, a lot of formatting. And yeah, it's it's just, it's really, really useful. And it gets everyone on the same page. 
you know, so that if you want to auto fix some things on save, you can make sure that as long as everyone's using VS code, everyone's doing that, Mm -hmm. you know, so you don't have to tell people how to set up their editors individually. It just works. I noticed you have an extensions, I think, .json in there too. Yeah. So so this also allows you to, to add recommendations. And again, you can see this in View Enterprise Boilerplate, where you can list a bunch of extensions that, like, when you open up this project in VS Code, it'll say, hey, this project recommends the following extensions. Would you like to install them? And then you can just hit yes, and then they will all be installed. And so you can get things like, you know, automatic formatting and linting and stuff like that for your JavaScript, CSS, HTML, and everything. Whatever you want to set up, you can, you know, add some special extensions for, you know, the testing framework that you're using. And yeah, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, I have to say that was uh, very useful for my team. When we first, when we started our very first view project, we used the view enterprise boilerplate. That is a mouthful, by the way. <laughs> um, previously, there had been Oh, let's not start a bad thing. Come on. <laughs> we do not need more acronyms. Chris's web, you know? Oh, gosh. Anyway, I think we should revisit that later off air. But um, <laughs> no, like previously there had been some clashing, mostly me being extremely anal uh, about some style choices. <laughs> that were not being uniformly enforced. And so it was really nice to, like, we we just agreed that we would accept the defaults that were there. And that was that. And everything gets formatted automatically for you. So I didn't have to complain about, you know, there not being a space between uh, if and the first curly brace after it, because that drives me nuts. (laughs) Speaking of enforcement, like along with those extensions and the settings in VS Code and snippets and stuff like that. There are a few other ways that I like to like enforce best practices. And one of them is through generators, which uh, you can set up in, in JavaScript. I use Hygen. It allows you to automatically fill out the boilerplate for a file for specific kinds of files. So, you know, I have it set up. So I, I type in like yarn new component and it creates a component with like, you know, the, the, the base, like, template, script, maybe a style block. You know, you can add settings to have it ask you like which blocks you'd like to add. And if you're using like modules for scoping, it can automatically like add that attribute and it can enforce certain like best practices about the name of the component if you want. And it can even do things like add other files. So let's say you've decided you want all of your components to be unit tested you can automatically create a unit test whenever anyone creates a component. And so that way, like, they already have a unit test that just basically tests that, like, this exports a valid component. And you can add more specific tests as you go. And I I find that that's so useful because one of the, the big hurdles for a lot of developers, myself included, like, for following a best practice, is that, like... Ah, it's hard and it's like it kind of takes you out of the way and you have to switch contexts. And when you're talking about like creating unit tests for a file, those unit tests don't exist yet. Like no unit tests exist. First, you have to create the file, figure out maybe where it's going to be. I like to keep all of my unit tests right next to 
the file that it's testing so that you never have to think about that actually. And it has some other advantages too. And you have to go in and you have to figure out like, okay, what boilerplate do I need? You know, what's the syntax? And maybe look something up. But when you already have all the boilerplate there and an example of the syntax, it's suddenly much, much easier to create that first special unit test, the, the thing that tests more than just, you know, is it a component? And so it, like, people are a lot more likely to write unit tests, I find. Yeah. As somebody who personally uses that feature, I won't say that I write unit tests every time, but when I do, there's very little friction. <laughs> yeah. That's usually not the case with unit tests. Yeah, I think I would write fewer unit tests where those files not automatically generated because then I'm just like, oh, okay, I'll just click the next file down and, you know, put some stuff in there. It's already like halfway there. Okay. <laughs> and honestly, I don't think I've worked in any applications that were more than a few months old and maintained by more than one developer that actually had unit tests for every file. <laughs> right? I mean, okay, so technically like, I do. It just may not be tests other than one. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, like throw unit tests, yeah. The recently I managed to fail valid component test by somehow breaking it later. I have to look at that. I just sort of ignored it at the time because I was like, I know it's a valid component, whatever. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I know. I'm like, oh man, if I if I failed ignoring that, the test. what did I do? I know it's a slippery slope, but every every couple of months I go back and I, I fix all of the broken tests. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So... If you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. I don't actually push for like 100% unit testing anymore. Like I, I used to as a, as a younger, more idealistic developer. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm working with a team, I, I've become a little bit more open to compromise. And there are only two things that I insist on. And that is end-to-end tests on first, like, can they log in? And can they give us money? <laughs> And that's it. Honestly, if they can't log out, whatever. We can run that. Like, that's a serious bug, but like, it's not the end of the world. But if people cannot log in, you don't have a product. If they can't give you money, you don't have a business. That, those are valid, very, very valid yeah. points. Yeah, I actually and, recently and had a where you couldn't log out. Yeah, if you can't log out, people are annoyed. <laughs> My situation's a little weird. Because it's only sometimes in what we call secure mode, only sometimes does it require a login. Mostly just because most of its use currently is by developers here. (laughs) It's just a development tool. It's really only when we put it out in the wild that we enable secure mode. So there was a lot wrong with uh, the login logout process that we didn't catch for a while because no one had put it in secure mode. (laughs) Oops. 
So yeah, perhaps a unit test would have caught that. Well, I, I recommend end-to-end tests for that instead of instead of unit tests. Oh, yeah. I mean, unit tests too, but the end-to-end tests are the only tests that actually test from a user's perspective, does your application work? Okay, so then what tool do you prefer for writing end-to-end tests? Oh, I love, I love, I love Cypress. <laughs> <laughs> I think you love Cypress. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't think he said enough loves there. I might need a couple more to convince me. <laughs> Is it just because it has a good developer experience or? It has a great developer experience. They have great documentation. They have like a wonderful uh, development client that you can use to, you know, uh, see exactly like what's happening with your tests and, you know, go through step by step and see like what your application looked like at various parts of the process. Like, so it's really useful for prototyping too, not just for debugging. When something goes wrong, it shows you very clearly like exactly what went wrong. It is the only end-to-end testing tool that I actually use in development frequently. Like there are some times when like, oh yeah, I guess I should be doing this like while I'm writing it. So like, uh, I guess I'll do it. But even when the, even when the requirements are pretty unclear, like the, the Cypress tests are so easy to write that I don't mind like writing some like initial tests just to like help me prototype and, and walk through the feature and, you know, sort of get it out of my head, you know, what I'm trying to build. And it actually makes me, faster in development rather than something additional that I feel like I have to do while I'm developing. Interesting. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Cypress has a a free tier and then they have a a paid tier where you have extra features. Is that right? Basically, all all the features are free. If you want to use their dashboard, then that is paid. So for example, if you want to use their, their dashboard to get like a timeline of like all the tests that you've run along with like videos and screenshots of all the steps of the tests and things like that. The testing features themselves are free, but if you want some of like the nice, more businessy features, you pay for that. So like yeah, essentially. not necessarily stuff you and I would gain that much benefit from. Well, so you're saying that the, the free version is more than sufficient to meet your needs. Yeah, and even meet your needs as a business. Yeah, you know, the, the size of your team and and what you're using those those artifacts for. Yeah. Like, and they, they probably have like more pro features that I'm not even aware of too. But uh, just with the free version, it's so so good. And th- there have been times when some people have wanted the pro version. There's never been a situation where someone's felt like, oh, I see, this is how they got me. <laughs> like, you know, there's this like one thing that's like essential that I couldn't do. And it's like, oh, now I need to pay for pro, you know, because I'm locked into this ecosystem. It's never anything like that. It's something that honestly you could, and, and some people do choose to like set up themselves with these, with these artifacts and set up their own like admin dashboard and interface, you know, that they're using for like all their applications and, you know, their entire infrastructure. And some people are doing that. And so that's what they, that's what they choose to do. But if you're somewhere in the middle and, you know, you don't want to set up like an ent- like an entire separate app for your infrastructure interface and stuff like that, then it's, it's worth checking out. And they're, they're, they're great people. They're great people. Oh, and the, te- the tests are so fast and they're reliable. Oh my gosh. Every time, and there have only been like a couple exceptions and I've been using this for, I think like years now, like a couple individual cases where it happened like once, I think, where a test failed and it wasn't my fault it's (laughs) my fault 
which is great. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's what I want to happen. I want the test to be broken because I broke something. Yeah. Speaking uh, of someone who tested with selenium a lot, I had a lot of false. Oh my gosh. False negative. And then no. you end up doing exactly what you were talking about, Ari, where it's like, well, it probably works though. So let's just deploy it. <laughs> and then what good are the tests even? Like, what are they even? Why do you even have them? Why do you run them? If you're yeah, just no, but, so my boss, his background <laughs> is actually in testing and he was so opposed to selenium that, yeah, I just got it in my head that end-to-end tests don't matter because like he literally was like, anything that uses selenium, we are not using. And I'm like, okay. okay. Cypress does not use selenium and it comes with View Enterprise boilerplate, at least the... Yeah, uh, I, no, it, it's all set up to, to be <laughs> in my project. I just <laughs> have it. Um, and did I mention that their docs are so good? Oh, just check did. it out. That, that's uh, a big compliment it. coming from you. Right, yeah. No, I mean... Even if you're not using Cypress, they have like a great best practices guide on end-to-end testing that okay. apply even outside of Cypress. So even if you're just interested in end-to-end tests, check out their docs for that. It's, oh, so it's, it's they're such a good resource. Good people. Previously, there was a Views on View episode about Cypress. Uh, we'll have to track that down and put it in the show notes because I remember listening to it, so I know it exists. <laughs> yeah, I remember being there, so yes. I yeah. know it exists. <laughs> Oh, and I remember I forget, that it was we, very informative. So I, I don't remember. Did, did we email Gleb Bamutov for that? Or did we, I think, I think we emailed someone not even on the Cypress team or not emailed, interviewed. I thought it was someone on the Cypress team. We did? Maybe you it was. There. No, you weren't no. there. That was before <laughs> your time. Ouch. So yeah, I just proved that I am a longtime listener. Because <laughs> <laughs> this was like last year, at least. But yeah, yeah, we should track that down and put it in the show notes because it was a very good episode. Oh, and there's one more thing that I do to make it easier for people to follow best practices. And this is one of the biggest life-changing things for people. If you've ever heard of like Husky or uh, Yorkie, these allow you to add like pre-commit hooks to your package.json file so that when people install these, like a pre-commit hook is set up that will automatically like go through and do all the linting. And, you know, you can even like set up linting through lint stage to run linting in parallel for different files and also run tests for certain files. You know, Jest has a feature where you can like hyphen hyphen find related tests. So if there's a, a file that imports that test somewhere, then it'll run that test. Oh, it's so good. Or if there's a, a test that imports that file. Yeah. And so it gets to a point where like, it's almost impossible to commit code that doesn't like comply to your, the, the, the linting standards or formatting standards of your company and fails a unit test. And if you want to, like you can still, like people sometimes ask like, yeah, but what if I just want to skip that test because I decide it's not important? Well then just like, right. <laughs> Like dot skip, <laughs> at least do that. Like at least make a conscious decision that you're going to ignore it. So I'm going to play devil's advocate on this because mm-hmm. for a, a minute, because that is by default how View Enterprise Boilerplate is set up. Uh-huh, go ahead. And I, <laughs> my team was very quickly forced to disable that <laughs> because it would run for everybody's commit in the repo, regardless of whether or not it had anything to do with that particular 
directory <laughs> and people were getting real annoyed. So you can actually set it up in Lint Staged, in the Lint Staged config, so that it only like targets some files and some like subdirectories and has different like rules for different subdirectories. That sounds complicated. So it's really yeah, not just, complicated. So looking at Lint Staged, <laughs> like I have a rule for star.js, which is all JS files. If I wanted just like all JS files inside of the front end folder, I would type front end slash star.js. All right. So yeah, it's not as complicated as you think. I would have much better habits had we not disabled that. <laughs> and you can have them again. I'm glad you believe in me, Chris. That means a lot. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, a, that's a perfectly legitimate like reason. And these, because these are running in parallel, they also run quite quickly as well. Since you can you know, target them to only like, run against the things that you want to run, it usually just takes like, it adds like one or two seconds to your commit, you know, and it only runs against the, the files that you've actually changed. And, oh, it's just beautiful. I just love it so much. I, I can't, it solves so many, so many problems and completely eliminates like those cases where someone is like submitting a pull request and someone else says, oh, you actually missed a space here. I hate it when that happens to me. And I hate it when I'm the person like giving that review. I feel like a jerk. Like I feel like a jerk, but like you want to set the line somewhere and you've decided that you want a certain code style, but when the tooling can do that for you automatically. Oh yeah. No, that's uh, even, if, that's even if they just like opened it up in Vim real quick and you know, you don't have any, you know, things set for Vim, all of that code style stuff still gets enforced in the commit. Yeah. That saved a lot of uh, nitpicky squabbles with my teammate. <laughs> Because, you know, there, there are two types of developers in the world, those that care about style and those that just don't. <laughs> and I happen to be one of those that maybe cares too much. I, I like I things to look the way that I think they should look, or at least I want them to look consistent. consistent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. Consistency is all I care about. Yeah. I used yeah. to be more opinionated, having worked with like so many different teams like basically everything looks fine now. Everything looks fine. I just want it to be consistent. All look that way, yeah. I just want my brain to be able to like reprogram itself to like parse this in a consistent way. Yes. No. So I will say that the the lint staged uh, feature was yeah very beautiful. I appreciate that enormously. <laughs> yeah. Maybe maybe in View Enterprise boilerplate we should um like uh, link to some some more documentation about how to modify some of those things or have like an FAQ for that, that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah, I think that would be helpful. Pull request yeah. welcome, Ari. Okay, okay. Because <laughs> actually, it was funny. I was thinking about that like while I was driving to work, like I don't know, last month. And then I forgot about that until today that I was going to uh, look into adding some documentation around uh, some of the automation and scripting that you include and how to DIY. But Thanks for reminding me by having the idea yourself. <laughs> Happy to help. Okay. So we've, uh, we've talked a lot about tooling around our editors and commits. What about browser tooling that you guys use for your view projects? I think the obvious one is going to be the dev tools. <laughs> what browser do you use most of the time? Actually, Ooh, I, maybe we should question. start there. I use Chrome. Chrome and Firefox. I use Chrome most of the time. It's just because that's the only browser I have to support. So. 
<laughs> Live in the God. dream. Yes. Wow. Wow. You are really rubbing it in. <laughs> so actually, you know, I've been considering switching to Brave recently after. Okay. I use Brave on my phone. Okay. I, I, I tried, but I, I can't tell you there are a number of times where you're going to be like, is something broken on here on this website? And then you realize like Brave blocks some JavaScript. And then oh. like the function, you, even just like logging in, you're like, you can't log in because Brave blocks something. So I, there are some weird things that you have to wrestle around when you do Brave. I mean, of course you get the privacy stuff, but just know that it's not seamless. Okay. Gosh, that sounds like a deal breaker. I just need stuff to work. I don't need more stuff in my way. Yeah. I just know that for us, some customers needed an alternative to Chrome due to the sensitivity of the environment they were working in. They needed data to never be sent back to, to Google. So we had, so I was like, well, Brave's on Chromium. Maybe that'll work. <laughs> and it turns out it did nice. for our purposes. So that was good. Cool. But no, like I never thought about just how much data Google is taking out of Chrome, but it is, mm. you know, there's a lot. Basically like, the only time I'm allowed to only support Chrome is when I'm writing like an Electron app. And in that case, and you that have to support initially... all the operating systems. Yeah. So you solve one problem and just create another. <laughs> yeah, no, setting up an Electron build to support all of... Yeah, no, that... I have been down that road. It's not super fun. Yeah, you're just asking a different question. So what, what OS are you on instead of what browser are you using? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, since that was our original target, that was the original requirement. Uh, I don't think we've ever handed over the Electron app to a customer yet. I don't know that we ever will at this point. But being on a very small team, which is literally just me at this point, you have to choose your battles. And browser support was not one that we felt was important enough to take me off of feature development for. Fair enough. I wouldn't recommend that for everyone, though. (laughs) But I'm so grateful that that is the situation I'm in. Okay, so we've established what browsers we use. Now, you dev tools, thoughts. I have some thoughts, but you guys... Yeah, go ahead. You can start. Yeah, what thoughts do you have, Ari? I liked the previous version better. Ooh, interesting. Why is that? I have a lot of issues with the dev tools. Like, it breaks on me a lot. Oh. Yeah. Like, it freezes? What version is it now? Four or five? Are we on five? We are... I I, I don't remember the exact major version number. Yeah. Whatever major version we're currently on, uh, it was released what, in March, right before ViewConf. Initially, there were serious issues with loading Vuex state in that it would take a while to load the state. And then every time it refreshed, you would it would scroll you back up to the top <laughs> and close any nested state you had open, which... If you're doing a real-time app, (laughs) (laughs) literally unusable. unusable. Like I had to open a ticket for it, which of course, Guillaume being the amazing code beast that he is, took care of it within a week and provided a much better user experience that was actually usable for me. Even so, there are times where it will, when I've made some changes and it hot reloads, it loses track of some of my state modules and so they're not defined, so my code stops working. <laughs> and it only does that if I have uh, the new Vuex backend enabled. It won't do it if I'm not. However, if I don't use the new Vuex backend, I run into uh, out-of-memory issues a lot. So. Yeah, with some of, the, some of the beta features, there are some, some bugs. And if you're using the, the Vue DevTools beta, 
you know, that's definitely something that hasn't been battle tested as much. Yeah. And I, I never have used to have to worry about whether or not I was auto loading VUX state because it used to auto load and it, I never had uh, memory problems with it. But if I leave that turned on, guaranteed in a few hours, it will pause to avoid, <laughs> to avoid crashing. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously I couldn't, I couldn't develop efficiently without the tools, but I miss the so they're, they're still imperfect. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I mean, if I didn't have it, I'd be like so much, more, like I'd be so much worse off. So I'm grateful for that. I don't know if I'd, I'd recommend this because I, I do recommend people like contribute and actually contributing to the view dev tools is, is easier than you might think it is because it's really, it's, it's a web app. So if you're writing web apps, like it's a web app too. It's just a, a web app with some special like Chrome stuff around it to allow it to be like in the dev tools. But inside of that, it's just a web app. Yeah, uh, but so, inside of it, it looks really complex and I don't know what's going on. Like I literally don't know why the backend stuff breaks because <laughs> the stack trace, I'm like, I have no idea what any of that is. Mm. I just know it's not my code. When you're totally unsure of like what might be going on or, or where to even look, then yeah, yeah so submitting an issue like you, you did is, is great. So we, we really appreciate that. Yeah, I haven't submitted one for this particular one, but yeah, the usability thing, I had no choice because I literally couldn't use the dev tools. Yeah, yeah, so, so, so submit an issue for that and, and Guillaume will check it out. For me, like, there's always, I always felt or feel like unless I can provide some direction, there's not much value in opening a ticket. And since but I it provides have some direction. No clue. I don't know exactly, like there doesn't seem to be a very strong pattern as to when it happens. I just know it's when I have the new UX backend enabled. But other than that, I... That's still better than nothing because yeah. it, for people who know the code base more, you know, they can think like, oh, what could be going wrong? Like what could cause that? And it's like, yeah. and then they, they start coming up with some ideas. I could at least, you know, include the stack trace for the errors. Yeah. Okay, fine. I know I can make it happen if I just turn that back on. So I will do that because, yeah, you're right. Why should other people have to suffer? Because I was too lazy to open a ticket. Well, it's it's not why should other people have to suffer. I, I'm, I'm just trying to help us help you. But also, if I help... I don't want you to suffer already. If I, if I help you help me, that helps other people too. Yeah, but most importantly, it helps you. I like to think more about other people because obviously I haven't cared enough to do anything about it for many months at this point because so, there's still but, a workaround. I mean, do you think it's your responsibility to hunt down issues that you're not having that other people might have? No. Yeah, exactly. So most importantly, it helps you. <laughs> yeah, but I'm pretty sure other people are having this issue. I've seen some people sort of hint at it, yeah. but like me, they're like, I don't know. When there's sort of a, a nebulous cause, it, I feel weird about issuing a ticket because I'm like, what if it is just me? <laughs> What if it's something weird about how I wrote my code base? Even if it is just you, like it's worth knowing about. Okay. Because yeah, maybe someone else will do the weird thing I did. But it's also extremely unlikely that it's just you. Yeah, that's true. Especially because it keeps happening. And presumably the, with the weird thing that you did, your app works. So yeah, it you know, does. It's, it's very likely a legitimate use case. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like I haven't done anything that weird. Of course, you know, I wouldn't know if I did because <laughs> it's what I'm used to. <laughs> Are there any other browser tools that you guys utilize? 
to help you with uh, view development? Is there anything I don't know about? Because, man, I don't know a lot. <laughs> Let me see what extensions I have installed. Something I, I like quite a bit, this isn't really specific to development, I guess, but <laughs> no, nah, okay. so I won't mention it. I, I, I'll mention this one, but I won't mention any more. Vimium. I really like to use Vimium to like set up some some quick like navigation of pages with keystrokes, you know, to oh. like uh, like really quickly open a link and stuff like that. And so I use Keyboard Maestro, but yours is browser extensions. So you just talk about keyboard, yeah, yeah keyboard macros. So well, like, it's not. No, it's not really macros. It actually like, for example, if you press a certain key, mm-hmm. it will place a number or sometimes multiple numbers next to like each link on the page. Mm -hmm. And then you just press the key that is next to that link in order to open that link. And so in two keystrokes, you know, you can open a link really quickly instead of having to like switch to your mouse and open it from there. So it sounds like this would also qualify as an accessibility tool. I'd say a very weak accessibility tool. I wouldn't I mean, say like if you're if you your site if you can use this tool with your site, then you know it's accessible. I wouldn't say that. But if you but can't, I'm saying use it this could tool help people this... who struggle with their mouse, right? Yeah, and I, I would say if you if you can't use this tool with your site, then it is definitely not accessible. <laughs> you need to fix some things. <laughs> so it doesn't. God. It doesn't prove accessibility, but it can like prove that your site is not accessible. I meant more like as an accessibility tool for general use for people who... Yeah, that's true. I, I, don't, I don't really use it for that. It's more just uh, laziness. One person's laziness is another person's uh, inability. So. <laughs> yeah, and also a little bit like with, like, like with Colomac. Like part of it just what feels cool. What is that? Colomac is a different keyboard layout. Why? <laughs> so <laughs> I've tested it and it allows me to type about 5% faster. Huh. Which how long is it, okay, but how not long a lot, but if you add that up and you think about all the typing point. I do, like think about like all the extra free time that I've gotten. I probably read like three books with the free time that I got from that, maybe. But how long did it take you to get used to the layout? I took two weeks to train myself. I, I'm not saying I didn't do anything for two better weeks. Better than I am at things. <laughs> I'm just no, no, no. I, I'm just saying there was like an hour every day where I just like watch TV, and while I was watching TV. I would do like a little typing program to retrain myself in Colomac. And I was, for the rest of the day, I was like doing my work in normal QWERTY stuff. But then when I, when I felt comfortable enough with Colomac, then I started switching to it for everything. Right. And I'd knock on back. And it's, it's so good. And something nice about it that's different from Dvorak, for people who might have tried that, it keeps Z, X, C, and V in the same place on your keyboard so that like your undo, cut, copy, and paste are not messed with. That, that's actually very that's important, important to me. Yeah. That's very important. So and actually, A is I also kept in the same place. Because <laughs> I'm that lazy. I, I have uh, cut, copy, paste, and undo all bound to uh, extra buttons on my mouse. Nice. Pro tip. <laughs> all right. Uh, we are running out of time. Yeah, so we need to do picks. Probably, yeah. <laughs> I have questions yeah, about Colmac later, Chris. <laughs> Happy to answer. The most common question is just Why? <laughs> which I think we covered. So, yes, yeah. <laughs> A couple of years ago, I put out a survey asking people what topics they wanted us to cover on devchat.tv. And I got two overwhelming responses. One was from the JavaScript community. They wanted a React show. And the other one was from the Ruby community and they wanted an Elixir show. So we started both. The React show though is React Roundup. 
And every week we bring in people from the React community and we have conversations with them about React, about the community, about open source, about what goes into React, how to build React apps, and what's going on and changing in the React community. So if you're looking to keep current on the current React ecosystem and what's going on in React, you definitely need to be checking out React Roundup. You can find it at reactroundup.com. So Ari, would you like to go first today for picks? Sure. Uh, I have one pick. It is the game. You may notice that I pick a lot of those. It is called Gris with the French spelling. So G-R-I-S. Oh, that's so it good. Is, I love that. Yeah, that's yeah. fun. Oh, it's a, number one, it's a beautiful game. Like the artwork is just truly beautiful. I can't really describe it. It's sort of watercolory, but very ethereal at the same time. Uh, yeah. Anyway, it's a, I guess, what, what would you call it? A adventure puzzler? I don't know. But it's awesome and you should try it. Yeah. Oh, I, I pronounced it Gris. I was, I was assuming it was Spanish. Ah, hmm. So it could, okay, well. it, it could be French too. I, I didn't even think about that. Like from the game, yeah. I'm betting it's French. <laughs> yeah. That seems like a French kind of game. Yeah. <laughs> and exactly. listeners, when you play it, you'll think French. like, oh yeah, this is yeah. probably French. As I recall, the credits had a lot of French names. So I think I'm right, mm-hmm. but I could definitely be wrong. Yeah, you're probably right. That, yeah, that is a fun game. Thank you for sharing that. Is that your only pick? That's my only pick. Ben, what about you? Uh, let's see. For this week, I think my pick is actually, I, I finally got around to watching Wreck-It Ralph Breaks the Internet. And I had actually had a lot of fun watching them personify what the internet would be, like from the view of like 3D characters of like social media and like what websites might look like in this like fictional world. And so that was actually a pretty fun watch. Yeah, that's my, that's my pick for this week. Okay, I have two picks. Uh, the first one is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which is an animated Spider-Man movie that is, is actually really, 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 really good. Okay, so uh, how I, do you like Spider-Man to enjoy this? Because I've heard a lot of people say great things about it, but I feel like they were all Spider-Man enthusiasts. I, I honestly don't know. Like, I was into Spider-Man when I was younger, and then all the Spider-Man movies that have like come out like Tobey Maguire on, I've just hated. I've okay. hated all of them. At least all of the ones that I saw. I haven't seen all of them. And I haven't seen like the latest iteration. But just because like, I can't bear my heart being broken anymore. Why well, not give Tom Holland a chance? <laughs> and, and maybe. And that's, that's what I've heard. But like people keep telling me that about movies and then I keep watching them. And then it's like, <laughs> that was terrible. Why'd you do that to me? <laughs> A part of it is just that it's not like, I'm not saying that these movies are necessarily terrible, but it's not what I think of as Spider-Man. It's not what I'm looking for, you know? So it's, it's sort of like if you come home one day and like your spouse is replaced by a different person, they could be a perfectly fine person. It doesn't matter. They're not your spouse <laughs> and you kind of would like them back. That, that's a great that's analogy. Kind of how I feel about Spider-Man. It's like, it's, it could be fine, but it's not what I thought, it, I want, bring me the Spider-Man I thought I was getting. Like, or the, the thing, like the, I just needed to capture, like, the, the things I love about Spider-Man. Like, the, the wit in the fact that, like, Spider-Man's just kind of, like, a normal guy. And not, like, a dweeb high school kid or something like that. He's just, like, a normal person, like, in these extraordinary situations. And also, like, with a life. And just trying to, like, live his life. And nothing really captured that. Nothing that I, that I saw of the movies. And so I was really hesitant to watch this for a while. A friend kept telling me, like, basically every week, like, hey, have you watched it yet? Because I think you would like it. And I just kept putting it off because I, I didn't want to be disappointed again. But I tried it out, and it was great. 
It was truly fantastic. Captured everything I love about Spider-Man and introduced some new things to love about Spider-Man. Yeah, it's got so, a great so good. It has a great cast of voices too. Yeah, it, it captured all of that without being super nostalgic. Mm-hmm. It was actually like introducing a lot of like new things and moving Spider-Man uh, forward. Mm-hmm. So I, I can't recommend it enough. Um, the other pick that I have is, I mentioned last week I was going to start reading Children of Ruin soon and I was looking forward to that. I have started it and so far it is very good. So I would definitely recommend that, especially if you've enjoyed Children of Time, also by Adrian Tchaikovsky. So good. And if you haven't read Children of Time, I'd say you can still read this, but uh, read Children of Time first because like, I, I guess you'll, get a, you'll probably get a little bit more out of it, at least from what I've seen so far. Uh, if you read Children of Time first, and they're both great. So if you haven't started one, just read Children of Time first and then read Children of Ruin. Oh, and I should also explain they're uh, basically about exploring like alternate forms of life and alternate forms of intelligent life. And by the way, if you're really into that stuff and you want some really trippy, trippy book about like alternate forms of life and alternate forms of intelligence, try out Blindsight by Peter Watts. I've mentioned it like really early in the podcast, I think, but so worth a read. One small warning though, it was not allowed to be sold, uh, or it was, I don't think it was not allowed to be sold, but I think the publisher chose not to publish it in Russia for a while because it was decided to be too depressing for a Russian audience, which seems to me like it says a lot. (laughs) It was too depressing for a Russian audience, but I, I honestly did not find it that depressing. I found it very, very interesting. It is dense though, but so good. So many interesting ideas for me personally, like I read fiction for ideas. I don't really like fiction about relationships. I get kind of bored by that. So if you're like that too, you might love Blindsight. And uh, with uh, the other books, I, I think whether you enjoy relationships or ideas, you get both. So just dive in, have fun. That's it. All right, Chris, ready to take us out? Sure. Thank you everybody for joining us this week on Views on View. And until next week, enjoy the view. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.